Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 112. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Katie Sampek about Anthroday 2021. We also dive a little into paleoanthropology and the study of Africans and African-Americans in history in places other than the southeastern United States. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. My guest today is Dr. Katie Sampek. She is the Associate Professor of Anthropology at Illinois State and a research associate at the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard. I definitely want to talk about that later. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So you were put in front of the Archaeology Podcast Network because of Anthro Day. Hashtag Anthro Day for any that wants to follow this on social media. And Thursday, February 18th is actually Anthro Day. Why don't you first tell us what your affiliation is with the American Anthropological Association, what we typically call the AAAs, which coincidentally as an archaeologist, was the first conference I ever went to was the AAAs back in like early 2000s in Chicago, I think. I was at the University of North Dakota and that was the first conference I ever went to. But why don't you tell us what you do for the AAAs and we'll expose our archaeology audience to the broader anthropological discipline. Right now, I am the archaeology seat on executive board for the AAA. So I think probably a lot of archaeologists in the audience wouldn't necessarily realize that there is a a seat dedicated and always held by an archaeologist that is part of the main decision-making group for the AAA as a whole. Yeah, well, that makes sense to me. Some of our UK audience may not think so because some people who aren't in the discipline probably don't know archaeology is part of, I mean, I learned it as part of a four field approach underneath anthropology as the overall discipline, but there are places in the rest of the world, big places like the UK, where archaeology is not in the same department as anthropology. And they're seen as two very different things. Whereas over here, archaeology is, my degree is in anthropology, but I'm an archaeologist. That's how we explain that. Like, I don't have a degree in archaeology. So that makes, that makes sense to me. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And that's that's the tradition in American anthropology that archaeology has always been there and an important part of anthropological uh, research and approaches. But at the same time, I think as an archaeologist attending a big meeting like the AAAs, you feel overwhelmed by mm-hmm. cultural anthropologists and you're not sure what the place is. And, and definitely there's an archaeology division as well. And I previously served as the secretary for the archaeology division. And that's a wing that is focused on 
archaeological issues and integrating archaeological perspectives and representation in the AAA as a whole. So what kind of things do you focus on in reference to archaeology at the AAA conferences? Like what, what kind of things do you guys try to bring to the table from an archaeological perspective? Well, there are a few different ways. First of all, in approaching major ideas and theoretical perspectives, archaeologists are important to participate in those conversations. And so Mm -hmm. it can be thinking about things in a very material way, and and archaeologists can really contribute a lot to that conversation. And, and, And many have done really important pioneering work that it's really good to be in a room with linguists and cultural anthropologists and physical anthropologists, biological anthropologists, and have that forefield kind of conversation about major ideas and major topics. And then there are also cherished traditions of, of archaeological sessions that have been held every year, the ceramic ecology session is Mm. one that I can't, I couldn't tell you exactly how many decades it's been going on, but it's been quite a while. (laughs) And it's always been my hope to be able to contribute to that one, but I've I've certainly enjoyed it. And and in fact, some of the first AAA conferences that I attended were to see what was going on in ceramic ecology. So Nice, nice. Well, the last AAAs I was at was Washington, D.C. a few years ago. And I got to say, it was, I think it was 2017 or something like that. And I went to a podcasting session. Shocker to those of you that know me on this podcast. <laughs> I went to a podcasting session and did a presentation there on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And there were a lot of, of course, anthropology-focused podcasters that were there. I wouldn't say a lot, but there were, there were enough. And we had a really great discussion. And I think that, to be honest... It's nice that archaeology is represented at the AAAs because I can tell you right now that the other three fields of anthropology are typically not represented at some of our big conferences like the Society for American Archaeology. It's just not something I've ever even seen discussed there. It's literally all archaeologically focused. Now, some people might have papers that use their archaeological discoveries or research to talk about more cultural related things as we do, right? That's why this all comes together, but... But there really is no discussion of it that I'm aware of that is evident. It, it is a dilemma. I think it could be some goals to set in the future for future archaeological conferences, regional ones, as well as national ones, to really actively recruit and incorporate people from other subfields into into. I would say... There are some meetings like the Society for Historical Archaeology, which I'm also involved in, that Mm -hmm. more consistently include ethno-historians and historians as part of sessions because it's seen as a very allied uh, kind of research that's going on. But for cultural anthropologists, ethnographers, it's it's much less common. And, And yet we can really benefit from from having that those perspectives. Absolutely. So, well, why don't we talk about Anthro Day then? So what is the thought behind Anthro Day? And before we get to that, though, I'm not really plugged into anthropology, as you might know. Is this the first year there's been an Anthro Day or is has this been going on for a while? Let's start there. 
It's been going on for a while. I have to say that I do not know the full history of when Anthrodea was first launched, but it's been going on for many years now. And the idea is to have a moment, a single day where we take a look at what we're doing, all of the different kinds of activities that anthropologists are engaged in, the sorts of impacts that anthropological perspectives and work are, are producing in, in all sorts of settings, and not just necessarily academic in the classroom, but within governments and policy and decision-making, different sorts of private sector activities, and to really highlight that and showcase it. So I can give you an example of what we're doing here at ISU to recognize Anthro Day. And it's in some ways pretty simple, but also a really great moment for us to come together and for the university to think about what kind of anthropology is going on at ISU. And so the Student Anthropology Club is having a couple hour Zoom session. And who doesn't want a Zoom session now? <laughs> it's a, basically a general meeting and different anthropology faculty are popping in to have a chat for 15 or 20 minutes about what they're working on, the sorts of things they've been doing this past year, the courses that they might be teaching, cool things that they've noticed in the news lately, all sorts of current issues, current ideas, and programs that might be of interest to the students. And uh, for my part, when I join in on the 18th, I'm going to especially encourage them to think about becoming a member of the AAA if they're not already, because there are so many benefits as far as resources, learning events, and, and so forth that the students uh, can mm. take advantage of if they're a member. Okay. Is there any public facing element to Anthro Day? Anything to sort of highlight anthropology and what anthropologists do? I'm thinking in particular of, I think, International Archaeology Day, which is in October. And a lot of that is public archaeology. A lot of that is focused directly towards the public. So is there a component of that for Anthro Day or is this more, more internal for the discipline to come together? Well, now you've got me here. I'm actually looking up to see what, <laughs> what the AAA has up on their website. But I know that there are news releases and and special podcasts and other other information to celebrate the day. Is there a space on the AAA's website that the general public can go, or is it behind a login page where you can find out what's going on for Anthro Day in the current year? It is absolutely free. And so if you go to AmericanAnthro.org, and that's the AAA website, it has a separate page that describes what is Anthropology Day you can visit the special Anthropology Day resources, especially there are materials for K through 12 teaching and mm -hmm. outreach kit. And there is a virtual Anthro Day kickoff event that you can register for. And you can even, by tweeting and using your social media and linking into the Anthro Day hashtags and so forth, you can win a $200 gift card, potentially. So Wow, there you go. There are several different ways that 
They're trying to pull people in and make them aware of what anthropology is and what it can do. Awesome. And I'd imagine if you missed, you know, Anthro Day, February 18th, 2021, these links will stay up for quite some time. The resources will stay up for quite some time. So you could go back, even if you're listening to this podcast in the future. I don't know how far in the future, but if you're listening to this podcast at least a short while into the future, then you could probably go back to that website, which will be linked in our show notes and check out all the resources related to Anthro Day linked on the website. I don't know if we made it or not, because this podcast comes out the day after Anthro Day, but I'll, I'll talk to somebody to get it posted on that website and so people can hear it. <laughs> I'm sure that they will be quite glad to link this podcast to all of their other Day resources. Yeah, we, we have a lot of podcasts on the Archaeology Podcast Network, and I know the Dirt Podcast, which is a, one of our more popular shows, is actually doing a live show on Thursday, I believe, focused around Anthro Day. I'm not sure what they're going to talk about or where they're even posting that or where they're going to be live, but I know they're doing a live show for Anthro Day on their podcast, which I'm sure the recording of that will be out on their, their regular feed, so listeners to this show can check that out as well. Because it's already happened uh, as of the time of this release. So there you go. Yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure that these different materials and links and all of that stay live for a, a good while after Anthro Day is mm -hmm. passed. So uh, you can think yeah. of it not just a single day, but live with it the whole year if you want. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine they stay up until Anthro Day 2022 gets in full swing and they're, they're replacing everything with 2022 stuff. So that makes sense. Okay. All right. Well, is there anything else about Anthro Day that you want our listeners to know about or, or think about or, or anything like that before we move on to another topic? I think that just to watch your, your social media feeds and take a moment and explore some of those, those links and resources and all of the different activities, because you'll see a real flurry of activities from all sorts of places that you might not have thought about before. And so, okay. so I encourage you to do that. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. And I, again, go to the website, AmericanAnthro.org. If you want to just open up your podcast player right now, it's in our show notes and you can just click on it. It should open your browser, depending on the podcast player that you have. They're not all built the same. So hopefully yours works like that. But otherwise, go there, check out Anthro Day, check out all the other great links that are on there and have fun learning about anthropology and all the things it can provide because archaeology is a subfield of anthropology. And as a famous archaeologist once said, what, what was the phrase uh, Benford said? Was that archaeology is anthropology or it's nothing or was it the other way around? <laughs> that's it. No, it's that's, that's it. it. And okay. <laughs> that's right. Other way so, around, I think, is what most archaeologists think. <laughs> I think you're probably right. You're probably right. So, all right. Well, thanks for that we're going to take a short break and then we'll come back and shift gears for segment two back in a second chris webster here for the archaeology podcast network we strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world one way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once we do that through the use of zencaster that's z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest just send them a link to click on and that's that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. All right, I am back with Dr. Katie Sampek, and we're going to shift gears now and talk about, well... Your work. And first off, tell us what you teach at Illinois State. I teach a few main main subjects. I'm a historical archaeologist, so I Mm -hmm. kind of an introduction to historical archaeology. This semester, I'm teaching a material cultural course that looking specifically at historical artifacts and material culture in in a broad sense. Okay. And then I also teach quite a bit about food and food, food history and the anthropology mm. of food. And my other main area of interest, landscape archaeology. So I teach about that too. Why don't you explain landscape archaeology real quick to a lay audience? Because I think they might be thinking, what, the land, the archaeology of landscapers in America? No, not that. So if you can maybe just define landscape archaeology, because it's a pretty cool topic, I think, and it, it has a lot of far-reaching implications. Yes. Well, and, and I like it because it lets people think about archaeology in a slightly different way. Because mm-hmm. uh, the general tendency is to think, well, what do archaeologists do? They go and they dig at a site. And that's real archaeology. What landscape mm-hmm. uh, archaeologists are interested in, they're very much interested in those places where people were conducting different activities or living, making communities. But we're also really interested in things like the road networks between those places the agricultural fields and terracing, irrigation networks. And it's a broad view of the entire context of where people lived, how they engaged with different places and how they uh, made their lives. Yeah, that's always been a real interest of mine because the, you know, the small archaeology site, like you said, is not the complete picture. Why why were they in the location that they're at? How did they get there? How did they leave? Because they're not there still. And, you know, what what happened in between? And what one of the things that really made me think about this, too, is I, I produce podcasts for other people. And one of my clients is a real estate agent. And she had a guest on that we were recording in Reno, Nevada. She had a guest on that mentioned a term that I'd never heard before, but is totally landscape archaeology in terminology and, and focus. 
But he said that Reno was in the San Francisco megapolitan area. And I'd never heard the word megapolitan before, but it was basically these big cities around the country, like Atlanta, Seattle, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you know, Dallas, stuff like that. They have these massive influences on the region around them. And Reno, a, a decent sized city in its own right, is still kind of beholden to the whims of what San Francisco and the major San Francisco area does, because a lot of traffic comes through there. People even commute sometimes, and it's uh, it's it's very much influenced by that. So landscape archaeology is kind of along the same lines of, yeah, let's let's talk about the bigger picture here. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful term. I love that. I might use it. I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I never heard it before. It. <laughs> because uh, I've been really fascinated with this issue of of those major cities and then the greater kind of suburban area. Mm-hmm. This because of their relationships with more rural areas. And so what is that interplay between those sustaining regions, the agricultural areas, the the places that people might think of as kind of unpopulated are absolutely crucial and vital for those big cities being able to exist at all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know one one example in prehistory that I worked with, I, was, I got a chance to work at uh, Olduvai Gorge for three weeks with the Earthwatch. Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, with the Earthwatch program. Yeah. And the pro, the other program that, that was going there at the time was out of Rutgers in mm-hmm. New Jersey. And they had this project called the OLAP project, which was the Olduvai Landscape Paleoanthropology Project because their thesis was that the the Leakies and other people past them had had done a really great vertical chronology of Olduvai mm-hmm. Gorge. But Olduvai Gorge has a, a strict base layer of uh, just over 2 million years old because of the basalt down there. So you can't go much farther down. And they figured, well, they really did a great vertical chronology. Now we need a horizontal picture at each layer. So they were taking 50,000 year slices of time and bringing out professionals in many, many different areas for field seasons and really looking at the entire landscape to get a picture of how these early hominids lived. And, and I just love that concept. Wow. You are, are uh, um, bringing up my uh, <laughs> memories of some of my very, very first field work as well. So mm. started out at the Kubifora Field School uh, in, nice. um, in Kenya. And, and at a time that uh, Richard Leakey had just found the black skull and and it was just fantastic. It was amazing. And I think it was that experience, first of all, that made me even realize that archaeology could be a, a career. Uh, my thought was, mm-hmm. you, you people doing this field school, you get paid to do this. <laughs> 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 nice. And then and also those vistas, those landscapes, the, the feel of the place and how, you know, the lakeside at Kubifora was a little different when you go out from the region, that region a little bit and, and, and those nuances of different places and the importance of them. And then back in the classroom, studying about the Old Ovai Gorge and the connections from um, East Africa all the way up and to parts farther north was mm-hmm. really tremendous. It made me see the world differently, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. It's just uh, really eye-opening when you get to go to places like that and see how everything's connected. It's just, uh, it's really great. So you mentioned field school. Uh, you teach a field school in Illinois State. Where is the field school and what, what's your focus there? 
The focus of my field school is it's a project that's done in partnership with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, the Tribal Historic Preservation Office. And for the mm-hmm. last, oh, gee, I think this is our ninth, tenth year we're coming up on now of uh, doing landscape archaeology. So we're really interested in the network of settlements, historic Cherokee settlements in the whole and that across the heartland region. So it's Eastern Tennessee, Western North Carolina into North Georgia, that, that sort of trans Appalachian mm-hmm. region. We've mostly done field work in Eastern, the Eastern tip of Tennessee and then across the mountains there in Western North Carolina in and very close to Cherokee, North Carolina, as well as Franklin, North Carolina. And what we're looking at are the settlements that are less investigated, sort of less fully appreciated, I think, point in time of the 16th to the 17th century. So my background is in Spanish colonial archaeology. I had done quite a lot of uh, field research in Central America. And when I got the job at Illinois State University, it was really important to have a chance for a field school that was in the United States. And because of people I knew, uh, my my late husband had done a tremendous amount of field work in that region in eastern Tennessee and knew that these Spanish colonial period sites were there. And so I worked very carefully and completely like every step of the planning and what we're going to do from season to season, our approaches and so forth with the THPO to look at these uh, 16th and 17th century period settlements and, and their rela- relationships to each other. Hmm. And it's an important turning point in sort of North American colonial relationships and in Cherokee history as well, I believe. Okay. What what kind of research is actually involved for students in the field school? What kind of what's the field work look like on this, or is it is it uh, records research and bringing all the resources together? It's every step. I'm really adamant <laughs> that every year that I have a field school, students go through absolutely every step, and so nice. that does mean the documentary research beforehand meetings and chances to learn about community knowledge systems. So, so Cherokee knowledge about these places and points in time. And then we do survey, we do different sorts of survey, uh, pedestrian survey, a certain component. Mm. Of that. We do uh, remote sensing, quite a lot of remote sensing. So this one site, Cowie, is probably one of the better sites investigated most thoroughly through different kinds of remote sensing techniques in the South. Mm-hmm. So ground penetrating radar, gradiometry, all of those different techniques that the students hands-on get to do and learn about. On the basis of those remote sensing results, we evaluate the, the areas that really make sense to do excavations and testing and mm-hmm. Um, and then so from year to year, we've really built on that uh, baseline of information from one season to the next and expand, expanded excavations. And then, so it's not just, you know, using a trowel, learning how to screen, how to, you know, look for the artifacts, do water screening, 
these sort of comprehensive recovery techniques in the field. They go to the lab, they, they clean the artifacts that we might recover. They learn to, to catalog and curate those uh, artifacts and how to record and make uh, better recordings, uh, go from field map to finished maps. And then they conduct, during the course of the field school, they conduct a research project that they complete by the end of the field school. And they give those presentations to the community at the end of the field school. So we have a, a, a field day where tribal community members can come and visit and see all the different sorts of things that we've been doing and where we've been working. And they go into mm-hmm. the lab and they see the process of cleaning and curating and recording artifacts there. And then students give their research presentations part as an oral presentation and then part as a poster presentation so that people can circulate around, ask questions and see the materials there and give feedback because it's not just a one-way process. I think that's an important realization for the students, but it's very much, uh, we learn so much by being able to work with this community and they have taught us tremendously about how to, to be better archeologists how to ask better questions, and how to pursue research in a really thoughtful and effective way. Yeah, that's such a great thing to bring to the table there. I've I've worked on so many CRM archaeology projects where we're just basically, you know, before I worked for myself, where we're basically just thrown out into the field and said, you know, this is where you're surveying, go dig here. And you, you don't even get the benefit of the background research, let alone any sort of Native American consultation on you know, ethnographic research for what's in the area, what kind of things could you look for that's unique to the tribes that live and lived in that area and and what can they tell you and, like you said, make you a better archaeologist and anthropologist. I like it. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's been tremendous. Yeah. And I, I learned so much from year to year. I'm really grateful mm-hmm. for the chance to, to work that way. Awesome. Well, I want to shift gears one more time and talk about your research at Harvard, but I think we'll just do that in segment three. So let's take a short break and we'll be back on the other side and continue our conversation with Dr. Katie Sampak. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 112, and I'm here with Dr. Katie Sampek, and now we're going to switch gears for a third time because you're doing just so many awesome and interesting things. we got to talk about all of them. So you are a, as I mentioned in the beginning, research associate at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard. What goes on there and what do you do at, that, uh, at the Hutchins Center? Well, I'm really very honored to be able to have the benefit of this affiliation. And what I'm doing is specifically archeological, as you might imagine. And I'm really working on building a support network and encouragement for investigation of Afro-Latin America. So many people would, are probably, would be surprised to learn that people of African descent were some of the first people to come from across the Atlantic to the Americas, along with Christopher Columbus. Hmm. And uh, they were the navigators of ships, the owner of one of the ships. And in every, basically every voyage, every expedition had people of African descent as part of that group. And they played key roles and of course, one of the roles that we're very aware of is that a very large number of people came as uh, coerced captive slaves who were being imported from Africa to work on the growing plantations and haciendas, as well as to work in urban environments and building cities and building uh, ports and working as sailors and as well as help in people's homes and and mm -hmm. all agricultural activities so pretty much every sort of major event and activity that was going on in latin america from its very beginnings had this membership this contribution by people of african descent and yet and yet very little archaeological work has focused on their lives and their contributions. Hmm. And this came, uh, really came to my attention as I was doing field work in what is today Western El Salvador. And this was really the birthplace of the substance that we know today as chocolate. So cacao was consumed <laughs> in lots of different ways by pre-Columbian people prepared as foods and sauces and drinks and so forth. And yet, uh, even though it was consumed all across different parts of Mexico and Central America, it's such a finicky understory tropical tree that it can only do well in very particular environments. So only a few places were producing it, yet they were basically providing for the rest of these regions. And one of those places was Western El Salvador. And as I did this archaeological work to look at the work environments, the agricultural environments, the sorts of trade networks that were set up, what early Spanish cities were like, it was really clear that uh, Afro-Salvadorans were incredibly important in the social development, in the cultural development in these regions. 
and um, looking at their the material evidence of their everyday lives was really important. is an important part of chocolate history. Yeah, I mean, referencing the first part of what you were saying there, it would be safe to say, uh, and I think no one would disagree with this, that the United States would not have progressed as relatively quickly as it did to a world superpower without Africans and later African Americans. I mean, it just would not have been possible. And their participation in that history, yeah, has been dramatically understated, if not not spoken about at all. It's it's insane. Yes. And and I think that's where archaeology is tremendously important, that we can highlight and show the relevance and show in this sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say, let's not just obvious, but personal yet substantial way mm-hmm. about the presence and the contributions of, of people that history has not maybe recognized so much. Yeah, we just released an episode on a podcast for the Archaeology Podcast Network called Heritage Voices, hosted by Jessica Yaquinto, and she had Dr. Antoinette Jackson on, and she was talking about her new book relating to African-American, I think it was called The Archaeology of Leisure, uh, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. we'll link to it in the show notes, but basically talking about African-Americans' participation in a lot of the things that we see as, and by we, I mean all Americans now, that we see as things we just take for granted in our lives. And one of the examples in the book is Mammoth Caves, right? African Americans mm-hmm. were some of the first to to actually map Mammoth Caves, go in there, and, and now the National Park Service uses some of those resources. I mean, they document it and they say where it came from, but it just doesn't highlight the contribution really in a, in a great way of African Americans to something like that. And there's examples of like that all over our country of things that were built by, maintained by African-Americans, and yet it's the white owners that are really the focus of, of most of the historical displays and things like that. Oh, yes. And and um, it, and if you think about uh, another great example is food and mm-hmm. the kinds of foods, the sorts of cuisines, uh, Southern cuisine, but also in Latin America, there are elements of, of food and foodways and agricultural techniques, um, rice growing, those sorts of things. It was African knowledge and skill and knowledge mm. of plants and, and agricultural systems that m- made it even possible. All right. Yeah, that's uh that's a lot. You know, we have another host on one of our shows, Bill White, who's now a professor at Berkeley uh, University of California. And he does he does a lot of his research focused on contributions of African-American, African-Americans. And I think he actually has a field school down in Latin America somewhere. I'm trying to remember. But yeah, definitely studying these things. And good for us as a world population that there are people studying this, such as yourself and, and my friend, uh, Dr. Bill White. And it's just, uh, I hope that we get more and more things like this coming out into the uh, into the research. How how is the study of African American contributions to Latin America, the founding of the United States, uh, represented at the AAAs? Are there sessions devoted to these topics? I would imagine, from a cultural standpoint, it's it's a relatively big thing. I don't remember a lot of this being talked about at like SAAs, even SHA for that matter. Some at SHA, there's a lot more historical stuff focused around mm-hmm. African-American uh, contributions. But what about at the AAA? How is this represented there? So I feel like uh, African diaspora archaeology as a whole is is really move 
forward tremendously and is growing tremendously. And so you see mm-hmm. it presented at not just big conferences, but smaller conferences as well, mm-hmm. and pretty broadly. So especially African-American, you know, uh, United States um, archaeology of African-Americans has really grown over the last, say, 20 years. And that's a regular, regularly represented at big conferences. Now, within, say, the SEAs, I've started this interest group of hmm. um, um, Afro-Latin American archaeology interest group. And so there it's to really encourage people to organize sessions on that theme. Um, there's going to be one at the upcoming meetings in April. And mm-hmm to uh, have a way to advertise events and publications, calls for papers, that sort of thing. So you really need, and that's the work that I'm doing with the Hutchins Center, is to try to really build those sorts of resources. So that, because in every country in Latin America, there's a certain amount of archaeological work that's going on that directly relates to Afro-Latin American contexts and, and concerns. And yet it's not, it's not well articulated. People aren't able to talk to each other all that well, all that easily. And so to have some sort of hub and encouragement of the community that exists, but maybe hasn't quite crystallized together in a, a more formal way is really important. Okay. So what are some of the for lack of a better way to say this, big questions of today, big research questions in African and African-American research. What are what are the big things that people are still, I don't know, trying to solve or at the very least trying to add more information to? I mean, we're always trying to have information to everything, <laughs> but is there anything that's yeah. just like the first thing that comes to your mind? So I think people are looking beyond the plantation and beyond mm. enslaved life. And, and there's a certain amount of work that's been done with free black communities. These, so, uh, they're also known as maroon communities in different um, contexts in the Caribbean and in Mexico, especially. But looking even beyond that. So what were 19th century free black communities like, say, in Mexico? Uh, and they existed. It's just they're they're a little uninvestigated. It, it's it's a it's a whole world of understanding. Hmm. It's clear in most cases, or in the cases that have been studied so far, that these communities are are important nodes in economic networks and political. You know, and for Latin America in the 19th century with um, independence movements. What were the roles of uh, black militia within that? And, and they're some of the, the greatest freedom fighters. And how can we understand the archaeologically these uh, uh, scenes of uh, places of engagement, battlefields and so forth, and, and look at it with a sense of understanding the contributions of these different soldiers in the, in the, in the military and as freedom fighters. And mm-hmm. then... Uh, many forts were primarily occupied, built by, occupied by, um, uh, managed by Afro-descendants. So that's a, a really rich way that we can reorient our understanding of Latin America as a whole. 
um, by looking at lots of different contexts that are more than sugar plantations, although that's, that's of course, uh, economically and socially crucial too. And even within those um, maybe more familiar contexts, articulating better the results and the knowledge that we have as archaeologists with tourism and with cultural heritage programs in those countries. Because a lot of times there seems to be a bit of a disconnect. And well, we recognize that slavery happened. And on the other hand, there's a tremendous amount of archaeological work that's been done in slave quarters and in work environments and so forth. But there's not a good dialogue between those two and and really grappling with the different issues that that information brings up. My brain is going in so many directions. I I didn't even think about African populations in like Mexico and uh, and other places, because to be honest, even as an archaeologist, I mean, obviously, African-Americans and other ethnic groups, you know, most ethnic groups in this country are spread out all over the place. Right. I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. different people all over the country right now. But when you think historically, you think the South. <laughs> I mean, it's just even yes. as an archaeologist, I think the South, knowing full well that African-Americans were in many other parts of this country and some other territories uh, doing doing what they've always done, sometimes venturing out on their own and, and sometimes still enslaved or working for almost nothing. And, and that's a story that is just not, not told enough. I'm, I'm, I I was just thinking of somebody needs to write a book or like a photo essay called something to the effect of, you know, the, the people behind the scenes, the real people that built the United States and just feature historic photographs and paintings where African-Americans and even Chinese are just like, in the background, you know what I mean? Like there, you've got all these white people standing in front in their uniforms and fancy clothes. And then the people who really did all the work are standing right behind them or off to the side or something like that. And, uh, that would be a, a fascinating collection to see because chances are there's people of African and, and like I said, on the West coast, Chinese descent in nearly every single photograph of that. So. Oh yes. Yes. And, and, and in many cases, so the work of uh, archaeologists like Paul Mullins have pointed out the, the tremendous advocacy and important social sort of activist contributions of Mm -hmm. Africans such as Madam CJ Walker and, Mm -hmm. And the archaeological work of looking at their homes, at their businesses, at these places um, where, at, you know, sort of their institutional centers that we can really uh, contribute a lot as archaeologists to thinking about the history of uh, the United States and African-Americans within it. Yeah, indeed. Well, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about any of the things that you are currently doing, which uh, the list is impressive, <laughs> but is there anything else that you want our, our listeners to know that we haven't had a chance to talk about today? Well, I'd kind of like to circle back to what I started with and being that archaeological representative in the AAA mm-hmm. in my own work. So I started out thinking about chocolate history through archaeology and looking mm-hmm. at the ground, those producers of cacao and how they related to the rest of the world. And then that brought me into contemporary issues with cacao production today and chocolate, um, chocolate uh, consumers today. And I do a lot of work with the fine cacao and chocolate 
Institute. So I'm on the board of that um, non-governmental organization, which is really an organization that's fighting uh, an advocate for greater public knowledge, good education programs, and and so forth for more equitability in the cacao chocolate supply chain, you know, from one end mm-hmm. to the, you know, from the producer to the consumer. And in that involvement, I've realized the real contribution of archaeology. And so we, we, we can offer a deep time history and these material perspectives that are really how people live their lives. And so, so I would be uh, really, uh, I would encourage the archaeological professionals out there to, uh, and, and many, many are already engaged in their work with community organizations and so forth. But I think there are many ways that we as archaeologists feel the power and the importance of what we're finding. And mm-hmm. there are great ways that you can connect that to current programs and, and policy making today. All right. Well said. Well, this has been a great episode of the Archaeology Show. Everybody, Check out the links in the show notes. We'll have a few of them on there. Definitely check out AmericanAnthro.org and all of the other things that Anthro Day 2021 has to offer. And, uh, you know, bookmark that page for Anthro Day 2022 next year. So, again, thank you, Dr. Katie Sempeck, for coming on the show today and telling us all about Anthro Day and all the fantastic things you're doing. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. All right. And we'll be back next week with another great episode of The Archaeology Show. See you later. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Fra 